If you would turn your attention over in your worship folder to page 9, just one page over on the other side, we'll look at our sermon text for this morning. And as we are talking about the elder this morning, there are two classic passages here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 that I'll read select verses of here this morning. So follow along with me if you would like to, starting in 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then from Titus chapter 1, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's servant must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold a firm, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Matt uh, just said, these are two classic passages on the office of elder in the the church of Jesus. And so we are going to take a look at particularly 1 Timothy 3 this morning. And I just want to remind you why we're doing this. Uh, uh, This month, at the end of January, we'll have a congregational meeting, as we have in recent years. And We'll uh, take time to, to look at how we're doing financially from 2018 and get a chance to take a look at our budget for 2019. But also, uh, at that meeting, we'll open up a season of nominations for church office here at Red Mountain Church. And so, um, as I was thinking about this year, I thought, you know, we just we have not, at least since I've been here, uh, which is coming up on uh, the end of four years, we haven't really looked at any of these passages as... Uh, a body of believers together. And so what I'd like to do this January is to, to, to spend this month looking at some, some key passages about the church and church leadership. And we began last week by looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And if you were here and if you weren't, let me just uh, remind you what we did was we looked at that passage because at the very heart of it, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as the giver of gifts to his church. And in particular, that he gave specific gifts to his people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry in order that we as a people would grow up into Jesus and mature and flourish and become fruitful both in our personal lives and as a community as we live the life of faith this side of heaven. And the main reason I started there was 
in talking about Jesus as the giver of gifts is I wanted us to see the church as rooted in the good news. That the church of Jesus Christ is the fruit of what he has done. It's not a man-made idea. It is actually the expression of the love of God in Christ for you. And so this morning, what I want to do is try to answer this question. is How do you get from the work of Jesus and the gifts he has given to the church as we see it described in the New Testament? And even more than that, how do we get from the work of Jesus in the New Testament to our church today? And why do we have church officers, specifically to this week, elders? And we'll look at next week, deacons. And so to try to answer that, I want to, I want to, I've got two points for us this morning. I want us to look at the architect of the church. And then I want to look at the shepherds of the church. So first, let's look at the architect of the church. And as you might imagine, uh, the architect of the church is Jesus himself. Not only has he given gifts to his people for our good and for our flourishing, but he is also the one who has given the specific design for his church. And so what I want to do is try to unfold this for you and how, how we see Jesus in the pages of Scripture unfold for us the blueprint, the design and intention for his church. So first, think back with me in the early stages of Jesus' public ministry. One of the first things that he does is he calls disciples to himself. Twelve total. You can look in Mark chapter 1 where he calls the disciples to himself and then only a couple chapters later in Mark chapter 3. You could look in any of the Gospels to see this, but just to um, give you a a place to to begin, you can look in Mark. But in Mark chapter 3, he appoints those 12 disciples, those followers, as apostles. Now, my guess is we, we quickly run past this passage when and if we read it. But you need to understand something about what an apostle is when we're talking about the blueprint for the church. An apostle in the first century is most closely analogous to what we would call today a power of attorney. So in the first century, an apostle... And the person who appointed that apostle have an incredibly close relationship. So close is that relationship that when an apostle goes to represent the person who appointed them, it's as if that person was there. Let me try to say that again. When an apostle of Jesus is sent out to carry on his ministry. It's as if Jesus is there representing and speaking on God's behalf. So close is that relationship between Jesus and his apostles. And that's really important to understand as we begin to look at just how the New Testament lays out the blueprint that Jesus has for the church. Because what Paul then tells us, as an apostle of Jesus... In Ephesians chapter 2, 
He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Jesus being the cornerstone. So think of it like this. Jesus is setting up a way for his word and his work to continue to live and to thrive in the life of God's people after his death and resurrection, after he has ascended into heaven, after his appointed apostles die, but the church of God continues. And so what is then built on that foundation of Jesus' life and ministry and the work of his apostles? If we were to look at just a survey of a few passages from the New Testament, this is what we find. If we look at Acts chapter 14, this is the very beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are headed out to begin to go into all kinds of cities in the ancient Near East and to share the good news about Jesus. And what we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, is that Paul and Barnabas went into the cities of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch where there were new budding communities of believers in Jesus and what they did was they appointed elders in every one of those churches and every one of those cities. And in Acts chapter 15, what we begin to see, Acts chapter 15 is an incredibly important chapter in the life of the early church where the apostles and the elders in the church in Jerusalem are together trying to sort out some really significant and important theological questions and difficulties in the early days of the, of the early church. And we see the apostles and the elders working alongside one another. And then in Acts chapter 20, after the apostle Paul has been in Ephesus for over three years teaching them, some say that he, over that three-year period, essentially conducted a seminary-length education among these people in Ephesus. And as he is headed back to Jerusalem, he has a parting word with all of the elders. He calls all of the elders to him. And we read some of that passage from Acts 20 earlier this morning. Paul has appointed elders in Ephesus, and they are the ones who are to carry on this gospel ministry as he leaves and is most likely never to return. And in fact, we also in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he addresses it to the saints and then to the overseers and deacons. And in Titus chapter 1, we read earlier, Paul says to his understudy, one of his um, interns, if you will, to Titus, he says, hey, this is why I left you in Crete. I left you in Crete in order to, in all of those towns where there are, are groups of Christians, to help them get elders set up who will be there to care for them. And then he lists all these qualifications. And then also in 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to, to Timothy, who spent most of his time in Ephesus, he says to Timothy, listen, you need to entrust to faithful men 
what you've heard from me. This gospel I have taught you in public and throughout my entire ministry. Entrust this good news to faithful men who will also be able to turn around and communicate and pastor my people with this good news. So what I'm trying to show you here is that Jesus, the church is not an afterthought. It's not a human invention. The church and the elders follow directly from Jesus' design and intention for the church's health and thriving and flourishing this side of heaven. Now, with that in mind, then the question becomes, well, what is an elder? Or, as we've seen in this passage we read from 1 Timothy and also from Titus, an overseer. So let's look at what are the shepherds of the church. A couple quick things before we look at the requirements we read here. First, does overseer mean something different than elder? Are these two different offices in the church or are they the same? And it's almost universally accepted that the idea of an overseer and an elder are synonymous. They may describe slightly different aspects of the one office, but the Apostle Paul uses these two terms, and so does Peter, synonymously. So that in our uh, English way of speaking, an overseer is the same thing as, an, as a bishop. The, the Greek term for that would be episkopos, where we get episcopal from. The idea of an elder is where we get the idea of presbyter or Presbyterian. The idea here is, this is is really where the whole idea of the Presbyterian understanding of church government comes from. It's an elder-led church. And we see Paul referring to the elders and the overseers in the same passage using the same terms. And Peter does that as well as... um, We see this in the the passage from Titus that we looked at. So first of all, when you see that idea of overseer or elder or shepherd in the New Testament, it's talking about the same office. But at the same time, Paul also tells us that while there's one office, there are two kinds of elders. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, some of you may be familiar with our uh, way of talking about elders in the Presbyterian Church in America and here at Red Mount, but some of you might not. We have one office of elder, but you might sometimes hear me say, or Matt or others say, there are teaching elders and there are ruling elders. Where do we get that from? Well, here's where we get it from in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So, I would be considered a teaching elder. Matt would be considered a teaching elder. Adam Venable would be considered a teaching elder. Joe Johnson would be considered a teaching elder. In other words, it is our full-time calling and work to labor in the preaching and teaching of God's word for God's people. And then along with our ruling elders, whose 
full-time calling and vocation isn't to labor in preaching and teaching, but along with us teaching elders, we rule, we oversee, we exercise, hopefully, godly, gracious authority over God's people. We do that together. And that's where we get this idea from of having teaching and ruling elders. So with those two points of information, I just want you to know that and to understand where do we get these ideas from that in all, uh, our effort is always to, to try to derive what we're doing from the scriptures. Let's look at what does Paul specifically, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3. What, what is an elder like? What are the qualifications and the, and the characteristics of an elder according to scripture? And Paul breaks down this question according to two categories. He gives us, in verse 2, a general overarching qualification. When he says, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Essentially, this has to do with an elder's reputation or potential elder's reputation. Above reproach does not mean faultless or sinless. If that was the case... We would have no elders. (laughs) What Paul means by above reproach is that an elder's life is observably, observably blameless. That he has a reputation that is reliable, that is dependable that is honorable. Um, An elder's reputation must be above reproach, and not only that in terms of the church itself, but also with respect to outsiders, folks outside the church. Look in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Here's something to think about. As we think about potential new officers, new elders here at Red Mountain, what would happen if in seeing if someone was a good fit for that, we talked to their, their friends who are not Christians? Said, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? I don't know many churches that do that. I actually think that's not only biblical, it'd be a really great idea. And the reason is because While, to be sure, lots of friends that you or I might have who do not trust in Jesus and might, in fact, even think that, well, to believe in this really is kind of, seems a bit weird and maybe irrational and doesn't make sense. Is there a sense in which you are still respected and honored and appreciated by somebody who doesn't agree with you. That's a vitally important part of what it means to be an elder. But Paul makes this general requirement of being above reproach, and then he unpacks that with a bunch of specific requirements as we move through this passage. And I'm not going to go through every single one in detail, but I'm going to try to group them together for us and see how they hang together. And there's essentially five requirements. First of all, notice 
Here, in verse 2, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. Now, if you were to go and open up any commentary about this, there is a lot of ink spilt. What does Paul mean here? And I'm going to spare you the details on that and cut to the chase. First of all, what Paul is not saying is that to be an elder in the church, you have to be married. Paul is not saying that if there is a man in the church who, who is qualified for this office but is not married, he can't be an elder. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying, he's making a general statement that an elder in the church must be faithful to his one wife. Now, it's worth asking, why does Paul say this? Why does he talk about marriage here as part of the qualifications for an elder? Well, first I think you have to think of how Paul talks about Jesus in the church. Paul calls husbands to love their wives, how? As Christ loved the church. How will an elder love God's people? Look at how he loves his wife. And furthermore, the reason why marriage is so significant is it is one, a very significant one, but it is one observable measure of a man's follow-through and commitment regardless of what comes. See, according to the scriptures, marriage is a covenant. It is an agreement, a commitment between two people that is inviolable and is unbreakable. And it is one of the most exposing, vulnerable experiences a person can have. And I'm here to tell you, being an elder is a vulnerable, exposing, challenging experience. How do you know if someone can handle that? Look at how he loves his wife. But not only that, fidelity in marriage, the second one here would be what we might call self-mastery or self-control. Look here in verse 2. An overseer must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Take all of those together and what you have is a well-ordered life. Sober-minded really reminds me as I think about this from Paul in Romans chapter 12, it's somebody who doesn't think of himself more highly than he ought to. Self-controlled really describes somebody who demonstrates wise discipline who's sensible, who's not rash. Respectable really is the outward expression of this inward self-control. It's the public portrayal of self-mastery. And then also hospitable, a person who's willing to give of their time, energy, and resources to others. And what's really significant about this particular qualification is self-control. If we just looked at it maybe from a human vantage point, self-control makes it sound like it's up to me to get my life in order. But biblically speaking, self-control is only possible 
Because Jesus Christ, by his spirit, is at work in the life of an elder. Paul in Galatians 5 says that self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Therefore, where you see a well-ordered life, where you see self-control in a person's life is evidence that Jesus is at work in this elder's life. So you have fidelity to marriage, you have self-mastery. Those are the positive aspects of self-control. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. But then Paul gives us a number of negative examples of that. He says an elder is not a drunkard. He's not violent or quarrelsome, but he's gentle. And he's not a lover of money. This is getting very practical. An elder is able to treat and enjoy, in this case, alcohol, wisely. In other words, an elder is somebody who doesn't take God's good gifts and makes them so ultimate in his life that it begins to ruin his life. An elder is someone who is neither violent, and here it means literally, physically violent, a bully. Nor is he quarrelsome, but in contrast to both, he's gentle. Now, what, what's in view there? Gentleness has, carries with it this idea of somebody who, who has a yielding temperament. In other words, who doesn't insist on getting his own way at any cost possible or any cost necessary. An elder is someone who does not manipulate, who's willing to have the harder conversations and to take the time to work gently with people who isn't argumentative, doesn't throw his weight around. And neither is an elder a lover of money. In other words, doesn't see the Christian ministry as a means of personal gain or profit. And if you step back from that lover of money, it actually drills down into the covetousness of our own hearts. What is it that we most want and long for? And what, to what lengths will you go to get it? An elder sees that about himself and is proactively endeavoring to put that to death. So you've got fidelity in marriage. You've got self-control or self-mastery. But then also in verse 2, teaching ability. An overseer must be able to teach. This is pretty straightforward. When you think about who would you like to oversee and care for you, you need to think about, does this person have the demonstrated ability and desire to teach God's word? To learn to understand it. And not just to understand it cognitively and to know a lot of information, but someone who loves sitting down and helping me understand why this matters for me. And will take the time to apply it to my life. In order that it would feed me and nourish me and help me to live by faith. 
teaching ability. Fourth, household management. Look here in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, I'm just here to tell you, I'm coming clean, okay? I, I have a very hard time standing up here in front of you and reading this verse and thinking I should be here. Now, well, I'll have to undo all this with my children later. <laughs> How to put it like this. They are much more submissive than I give them credit for, but I think they probably all would to some extent agree that they're not. And this is not saying that your children sit and are quiet uh, when you want them to be, for how long you want them to be, who do what you want them to do in every single moment. That's not what's being said here. It's going much deeper than that. What Paul is talking about here is the best indicator of how a man will lead in the church is how he loves and cares for his family. Let me say that again. The best indicator of how a man will lead and care for God's church is how he loves and cares for his family. Now, why does Paul put so much emphasis here on parenting? Here's why I think he does that. Because parenting is full of challenges and conflict and bewilderment and frustration. It's a daily life of having to admit, I don't really know what to do here. This is way beyond my pay grade. And any elder who spent any time in the life of the church and doesn't say that probably shouldn't be an elder. And I mean that very seriously. Parenting and being an elder are incredibly similar. And yet, you're called to be humble and patient and gentle and to lead in such a way that it engenders and, and creates a respect and obedience from those you're responsible to care for. And sometimes that doesn't work. And sometimes it takes a long time. I think the reason why Paul talks about parenting here is because it has so, such obvious parallel to what it's like just to care for people. It's bewildering a lot of the time. People are complex and beautiful and we come with stories and we're not easily understood. We can't easily explain it all. Oftentimes, when we sit down and talk and we unpack your life and your history and what you're dealing with, you can't figure it out. We're all kind of walking in this experience of trusting Jesus who knows us better than we know ourselves. That's parenting. Praying and hoping that the gospel will win in our lives and in our community. So, how a man loves and cares for his family is perhaps one of the greatest indicators of how he'll love and care for God's people. And then last, spiritual maturity. 
Look here in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, if I could put it this way, oftentimes converts are the worst. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I, I want, somebody told me recently, <laughs> uh, sorry about this, this is t- sensitive, I know. Uh, after Clemson won the national championship, somebody said, hey, it's so great to be um, excited about Alabama's next head coach. Did you get that? In meaning, Dabo Sweeney will eventually be Alabama's next head coach. And it's like, all of a sudden, I'm already hearing, like, Nick Saban's time is done. And we now are converting to Dabo, and we are really excited about this. And it's going to be great when and if that happens. And converts are the worst. Now, why is that? Not because of what they are excited about is bad. It takes time to grow in humility. It takes time to recognize that humility and wisdom are not the same thing as enthusiasm and being right. Enthusiasm and the conviction that you're right are an equation for disaster when it comes to pastoring and caring for God's people. Humility and wisdom are very different, and that takes time. So here's the point. The office of the elder, as hopefully you're seeing, is much more about character than competence. Yes, there is competence needed, but it's much more about, or put it this way, when we as a community are thinking about who might you nominate for the office of elder, you need to think about what kind of person is this? Much more than do they have an impressive resume. Now, Paul says here in verse 1, the office of elder is a noble task. Why is it a noble task? Here's why. Because every single one of these qualifications, while at first it might not occur to you, every single one of these qualifications, you know who they really describe? They describe Jesus. They describe Jesus, his reputation, as above reproach. They describe his fidelity and faithfulness to his spouse, that is, his people. They describe his self-mastery and his teaching and his ability to care for God's family and his maturity. And this is where the good news of this passage opens up. It's where we can uncover the good news of this passage because here's the thing. While every elder is called to shepherd and to oversee God's people, every elder is still a sinner, saved by grace. Every elder who should be an elder doesn't think he should be an elder because he's so aware of how far he falls short. He falls short of these qualifications. And the reason why we need to hear the good news from this passage is because it's so tempting, especially as God's people, to think we need really good elders, and you do. They need to resemble and image these qualifications. But if that is your ultimate hope, 
in the life of this church is that we have the best elders. I'm sorry, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And the reason is because there's only ever been one good shepherd. There's only ever been one good elder. And that is the Lord Jesus who says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So as we talk about elders and looking at who God has brought to our church and who might be able to lead us and care for us as Jesus has loved and cared for us, most what we need are elders who are committed to leading you and me to a great Savior and who will never stop doing that no matter how hard it is. Because being an elder really is about stepping aside and showing people Jesus, that he really is your only hope and salvation in this life and the life to come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage and we give you thanks for the good news that bubbles up out of it that while you've given us elders and you've designed your church to work that way, we don't do that alone. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our good shepherd, both yesterday, today, and forever. And we ask that you would work out in our community and give us the elders that you want us to have in order that we might grow and flourish in the ways that you long for us to. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.